Welcome. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to monitor and review the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 46 in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, December the 17th. First, I'll be talking to Ben Nolan, the co-founder and CEO of one of Australia's largest last-mile delivery firms, Shapparency, the platform built and funded in a 10-week period during COVID-19 lockdown. Shapparency is an online ecosystem that automates and digitises the process of board meetings and shareholder management. Digital minute-taking, reporting, signatures and storage replace inefficient and costly paper-based administration for board members, while shareholder portal sets it apart from others offering visibility and engaging shareholders, hence the name, Shapparency, Shareholder Transparency. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Olber about what we can expect from the market and economy in the 2022 post-lockdown period. But now, let's talk to Ben Nolan. Well, Ben, tell us about Shapparency. I mean, you're, you're doing a completely new way of handling board meetings and shareholder management, and all through blockchain. Absolutely. Hi, Leon. Yeah, so Shapparency is a digital board and shareholder management tool. And we take everything from a board meeting, such as the actual meeting, creating, operating that meeting, the minutes, voting resolutions, right through to shareholder management, communication, seeing them reports, they're voting uh, themselves, and we've digitized that into our platform. The key part for Shapparency and where the, where the I guess, the pain points are and why this is such a growing market is that, in reality, board, uh, and very few of them, less than 15% globally, uh, use any type of board technology. So we focus on just getting them to be digital first and governance will become the outcome. And where the blockchain fits in, which is we will start working on that after, you know, later on in this year, is it literally becomes a, I guess, another layer of, of security when it comes to how you can make records of certain elements uh, tamper-proof and, you know, as you call it, immutable. So document signatures digital notices, voting and proxy voting, that's where the blockchain really comes into play with, with something with a tool like this. And yes, we are definitely one of the ones that are, that are tackling like this first. Uh, digital minute-taking um, and signatures and storage, I mean, my understanding is that it's pretty inefficient 
but usually it's all paper-based administration, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and that also plays into our environmental angle because if you if you look at the all of board meetings and shareholder meetings, and if you go back to the composition of boards, so the average age of a board member in Australia is a 61-year-old white male. The lack of diversity on all fronts, lack of technology proficiency, less than 50% of board members in Australia have any idea of the technology that dis- is disruption in their own space. So these are the sorts of people that are coming to board meetings and printing off reams of paper right so, you know re- you're reluctant to change if you will but at the same time that's just how it's working right now and so what you're seeing is the composition's changing we do we, companies do care about the environment so that and, and technology now exists to 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 allow board meetings to be more um, digitally proficient and of course covid's just put a bit of rocket fuel behind all of this and so you're able to go into a meeting digitally view documents annotate comment uh, as you would normally, sign documents, much more inefficient process. And we actually calculate all of that in our platform and, and, and we can tell you how many trees you've saved based on the number of pieces of paper. And we actually plant a tree for you on your behalf by doing this. So, you know, we can wrap all up your efforts to say to stop printing and, uh, and by actually doing something for the environment. Uh, and this was actually funded and built during the uh, COVID lockdown, wasn't it? Yep, everything. I, I, I funded it at the beginning uh, when we kicked off. Actually, we were on a trip back from France and they were. it was quite quite funny in, in Europe. Everything uh, was going to lockdown rapidly. Like it was, uh, it all happened uh, overnight. They're like, right, this is, uh, we're definitely going, uh, everyone's got to stay home. And when I got back, I'd already stepped down as as CEO of a small uh, retail tech company. And I thought, what am I going to do for the next few months? So I thought, well, now's the time. And I, I have a suspicion that this virtual products are going to be, you know, really needed on the other side of this. So it all sort of happened at once. And, and we, we, we raised capital. We have built the platform. I have a small team operating. We've all, we've never we haven't seen each other in four months, and I've also and even the capital that I raised uh, was I've never all done over the uh, web conference, and then we've also been able to sign up partnerships, and we've got customers uh, onboarding this week in seven different countries. And again, I've never seen any any partner, uh, any customer except for a conference link. There's a shareholder communication as well. It's not just board meetings it's all, they're also communicating with shareholders through blockchain that's right well no no i wouldn't say through blockchain the, the core part of the platform is around how blockchain adds that extra layer of security right, okay. you everything that you do in the platform right blockchain pl- just provides an extra ledger on, on, you know beyond the database and so you, everything we do actually it, the data will be trans transcribed into the ledger uh, it's just what 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 extra use does it apply really? And I want to you know be clear on that because everyone thinks that you know blockchain can, is just a is just a fancy word or a buzzword you get you know when you're starting up a business. No, we've actually got a real application for it. When it comes to communicating with shareholders, I, I guess maybe I overcorrected that. It it is when it comes to communicating around digital notices, and that's been some of the challenges around why government or regulation hasn't caught up. Australia is actually one of the first uh, countries in the world that when COVID uh, hit, 
they quickly updated the Corporations Act to include digital notices and that meetings could be run virtually. That's far as I've seen in the last three months, that's like a world first. You know, most Commonwealth countries still sit on that old paper-based delivery of notices, you know, agenda, you notice of an agenda, make sure it's delivered by post and a couple of days for it to actually land and be received. And this has been one of the challenges that I guess companies have had when it comes to how you would move to being digital. Because how do you prove that a shareholder has received your email notification? It went to the junk mail, it you know, did this or that. Then they, you know, this is all the challenges. But blockchain really helps that. So in that term of type of communication, absolutely, that's going to be critical. And that's been some of the applications that we've had a lot of interest around what we're doing. And then in terms of other communication, just around engagement, we, we really believe engagement. That's actually where the word transparency came from, shareholder and transparency. I, I came up with that name quite innovatively brushing my teeth one morning really quickly. So we, there's a huge piece around engagement for us. And that, so there's a, whole, there's a whole message tool where CEOs, particularly for private companies, uh, but I was going up into, you know, fairly large companies that you know, obviously applicable for them too, but I would to drive better engagement, sending your reports, sending CEO messages. We can attach templates to, you know, certain things using our messaging tools when it comes to AGMs, EGMs, OGMs. So we, we've built all of that in around, engage, around our shareholder communication tool. And what's, what's perfect with blockchain is the data, your story on the blocks are actually mm. immutable. So that creates right. trust. And that actually goes to due diligence and governance, doesn't it? Yeah, and so that that is where, that is the real crucial piece around, I think, where board technology will come into its own. Because when I go back to the composition of boards that I said earlier around the age, ethnicity, uh, gender, it, it's, it's a lot of the reasons why, and I've spoken to companies and boards of all shapes and sizes over the last three months, one of the challenges that they've all had when it comes to adopting any type of technology is fear, is fear. And that's the fear of security. That's the comfort. It's a generational comfort with printing paper, right? It can't be stolen. It's a generation of just printing and, you know, uh, wanting to sign a document in person. That's just, there's still that just tendency to just, I, I want to sign it myself. I want to print it off. Whereas blockchain technology can take all of that away once there's there's a real understanding of how it will work when it comes to board technology and you know i guess we've got our work cut out for us you know when it comes to educating people to use technology in the boardroom so what i and then when it comes to blockchain of course there's an extra layer of, of maybe of complexity but that's what we really focus blockchain on so transparency on the fact that it's a it's just a productivity and collaboration tool it takes it, it takes you less time it's you know it's more efficient to use and then we've got this amazing technology behind it that will make it far more secure uh, it's impossible it's impossible technically to for it not for you not to be able to find out you know if it was ever tampered if a document that was edited doctored it, we record the versions of those documents if a signature was done by someone else we we know in the platform because we we have the id of who that person is and we we also make it far easier to do things like vote and proxy vote so there's a lot of, of security that comes in that because you know, they're just at a basic level. I'm no blockchain expert, and my my business partner and and the broader team are. 
but you know when that data is transcribed into that ledger it's linked with the ledger behind it and the ledger before it and, and and a bunch of other more technical ways that it's once it's ever broken or tampered with then you know exactly what's happened and who did it just a final question how many boards have you got using it we only so we only launch uh, wednesday uh, two days yeah. but we have about 50 customers that are onboarding over the course of the next seven days and they're the ones that are uh, we're based, we've got customers coming on board in Australia. I've got a, a large mem- uh, so a membership with the um, Directors Institute, which is one of the largest uh, director networks in Australia. We've got customers in Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines, and the UK, Thailand, and South Korea. Well, that's going to be fascinating to watch. And it's very much the way of the future. And Ben, it's been fascinating to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. And now let's talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver. Okay, well, Shane, uh, looking ahead to 2022, how do you see the market and the economy developing the post-COVID environment? Well, I guess um, I mean there's still uncertainties around COVID, but it does seem as if uh, science and medicine are gradually starting to get on top of it. Um, I mean, it's two steps forward, one step back. Obviously. Uh, uncertainty about uh, Omicron and so on, if I pronounced that correctly, but uh, it does seem as if we're, we're starting to make some headway here, which of course then um, enables us to come into a more sustained reopening globally and in Australia. And of course, we have seen a lot of that recently in Australia, particularly the East Coast states, which so far so good. You know, the, the, there's been no hesitancy, so to speak. There might have been a a fear of that. I was certainly concerned that with coronavirus still in the community that people would be hesitant in terms of getting out and spending, but we haven't seen that. People have been quite happy to get out there and go to restaurants and spend, and that's sent a good rebound in the economy, and I suspect that as we go through 2022, that will continue. There is a lot of pent-up savings or pent-up spending uh, in the US, in Europe, in Australia, and partly reflects uh, stimulus payments that were made through lockdowns, which of course meant that people uh, stuck, stuck at home, couldn't spend, and so that money, money piled up in bank accounts in many cases. And, of course, in Australia, uh, our rough estimate is that there's around $250 billion in excess savings at present, which is about 13% of GDP. In the US, it's about $2.3 trillion, which is around 15% of GDP. So that, uh, that pent-up savings or excess savings, pent-up demand, so to speak, uh, very low interest rates continuing through 2022, albeit we think they will start to rise both in the US and also in Australia, mainly in Australia towards the end of the year. Uh, those things, I think, will give us reasonable or pretty good economic growth as we go through the year, but probably a little bit slower than it was in 2021, probably looking at, uh, say, 4% growth as opposed to 5% growth globally. But in Australia, of course, uh, we were held back a little bit more by the recent lockdown. So therefore, we'll, I think, pick up from around 3.5% growth through the year to about 5.5% growth through 2022. That, in turn, should uh, all underpin share markets. I don't think uh, we're going to see the same speed of gains that we've seen over the last 18 months. Markets will slow down. They'll be more constrained. The easy gains are behind us. Share markets are no longer dirt cheap. And likewise, profit growth will be a bit slower than it has been. But the environment of still rising profits, solid economic growth and still low interest rates, I think, will be a positive one for share markets. So overall, we're looking at share markets providing returns somewhere between 5 to 10%, so high single digits 
but just a bit more volatile um, perhaps than they have been over the course of the last 12 months. I should also note that midterm election years in the US, and of course 2022 is just that, often result in volatility. Uh, we've also got elections in Australia and France, to name a few. So that political backdrop might give us a bit more volatility along the way. But overall, we see reasonable growth and reasonable share market returns. Well, in view of the elections, and of course, uh, we have an election coming up in Australia, and uh, one of the big issues for whoever wins will be the calling in, uh, fixing the budget deficit. And of course, uh, the end, what was in the post-COVID environment, it means an end to small government. We now have big government. We do. Uh, we're looking at, I mean, this is pretty much a phenomenon globally, that uh, government spending, even in five years' time on IMF projections, is projected to be around one to two percentage points of GDP higher than it was pre-COVID. And, of course, uh, that's still higher than it was pre-GFC. So uh, I, I guess uh, as we went through the 80s and 90s, the focus was on smaller governments, uh, whether it actually was achieved or not. But we did see more deregulation. We did see... Uh, limitations put on welfare spending, uh, means testing and so on. We did see privatisation. So in that sense, a break was put on government. But of course, the GFC and the failings unearthed by the GFC and of course, uh, more recently, the pandemic and a swing in the political pendulum, I guess, is the, the lessons of high government, late 60s, early 70s sort of faded. The Reagan era seems like like uh, many lifetimes ago now. We're seeing the political pendulum swing back towards the left, and that is also ushering in bigger government. So that's, I think, going to be an ongoing theme, that government will be playing a bigger role in things than perhaps we were used to, do, used to in uh, up, or at least up until the, uh, the, the GFC period, but particularly up until the pandemic period. So even though there will be some attempts by government to sort of wind back Stimulus payments, and of course a lot of that's already happened, simply when lockdowns end, you know, the payments stop. We're still going to, when the dust settles, I think we'll still be end, we'll still end up with a degree of bigger government than what we had before. Well, the other issue too is that we're probably going to face a smaller Australia because uh, immigration uh, is not likely to pick up that much. And of course we've got the issue of borders reopening, when they do. That's right. Well, obviously there's been no immigrants over the last... Uh, last two years and of course in fact there's been a, a loss of uh, or net immigration has been negative uh, believe it or not I know there's been uh, people returning to Australia, Australians returning but that's been offset by people leaving so that situation is very uh, unusual in Australia's history the norm up until the pandemic was that we'd have about 240,000 net immigrants each year that's the difference between people coming in and people leaving the country. So 240,000 addition to population just from immigration every year. We haven't had that um, on current projections from the federal government in the May budget. Yeah, they don't see us getting back to uh, normal levels of immigration until around 2025. Um, and so when you compare what would have been if we'd stuck at 240,000 per annum compared to the reality of what we've had, which is negative, and then only a gradual return to something more normal and a big debate about when precisely that will occur, when the borders will fully reopen, and also what level of immigration we'll ultimately settle at. I mean, basically, when you do the numbers as currently projected, you end up with a population which is one million smaller in 2025-26 than was projected pre-pandemic. So that obviously has a lot of implications for Australia. I mean, some would say that it's a good thing. It takes a bit of pressure off the housing market, arguably. 
Um, of course, the flip side, though, is that it does mean we will be an older population and perhaps less, a bit less dynamic. And so that impacts overall economic growth. So that, that I think, will become more of a debate post the election. Uh, some in New South Wales have recently been pushing for a, a catch-up in immigration. Others have been arguing against that. But that issue is yet to be resolved that yet. But at the end of the day, we'll, we'll like to still end up with a smaller Australia for the next few years than what otherwise have been the case. Uh, that would have huge implications for the housing market, wouldn't it, for house prices? It would. Uh, so far, those implications have been swamped by the impact of ultra-low interest rates, which meant people could get in uh, and borrow more. And that's why house prices have gone up, despite the fact that we haven't had the immigrants for the last couple of years. But that boom in house. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Prices is starting to come to an end. We're seeing a distinct slowing in auction clearance rates. There's more listings hitting the market. But I think the bigger fundamental issue is that uh, the lack of immigrants over the last couple of years has meant that underlying demand in Australia is at least half what it normally would be. It would normally be, say, 150,000 to 160,000 dwellings per annum is needed. We've gone through a period where it's perhaps half that. Uh, of course, we've continued to build houses, so we potentially go into a period of oversupply uh, in some markets. Now, of course, some would say, well, yeah, well and good, because we've had so long with undersupply, and that's led to uh, poorly affordable housing across Australia. So a, a period where we go into oversupply, you know, where, where supply is still good, but demand is not as strong as it has been, would actually be a good thing in terms of improving affordability. But it, it could start to act as a dampener on house prices as we go over the next couple of years, unless, of course, there's a, there's a massive pickup in immigration. Well, the other issue, too, is I suspect uh, the pandemic probably means an end to globalisation. Uh, would you agree with that? Well, the globalisation trend has sort of come in fits and starts over generations uh, and decades. It had a huge run, of course, uh, since the end of the Cold War, at the end of the 80s into the 90s, as the Eastern Bloc and particularly China was brought into the world trade system. That led to a massive boom in global trade, and that was you know, surging globalisation, if you want to put it that way. That seems to be slowing down right now. It was slowing down prior to the pandemic because of the trade war between the US and China. Uh, and then the pandemic, I think, has just accelerated that because there's issues about supply chain problems and 
upset medical supplies being unavailable. That's put pressure on politicians to bring production back to home countries. And that's also occurring at a time when robotics are sort of taking over, making that viable to some degree, whereas before basic cost was labour cost, whereas that's becoming less significant these days. And if it's just run by robots, then you could do that anywhere just about. Um, so that's an ongoing issue, I think, is slowing in globalisation or it's reverse. Uh, and the combination of that, bigger government, more regulation, uh, and of course enhanced money supplies following the pandemic, uh, all risks higher inflation in the years ahead. And that's obviously a, a, something for investors to, to keep an eye on in the years ahead. And I'm not talking about the short-term spike we're seeing at present. Um, that's mainly due to pandemic distortions, and that should fade a little bit through 2022. But I mean longer term, the combination of less competition globally, uh, more money supply sloshing around, um, those sort of things could mean higher inflation rates than we got used to prior to the pandemic. And, of course, if the economy isn't performing that strongly, that raises a question of 70s-style stagflation. That's certainly a risk. Hopefully we avoid that. That would be a worst-case scenario, uh, high inflation and very low growth. Um, back then, inflation at some points was sort of high single, high double digits, uh, sometimes above 20%, um, and that really weighed on share markets because when you've got high inflation, uh, interest rates eventually have to go higher, which means that shares have to trade on lower PEs, whereas the low inflation environment we've been in has meant higher and higher PEs. So that would obviously put pressure on share markets. Hopefully that will be avoided because central banks still have low inflation targets. So even though if we get a period above those targets, you know, they're still mandated to deliver 2% or 2 to 3% in Australia. Um, so I'd be quite happy to see a 2 to 3% inflation rate going forward or maybe a little bit above that. But if it goes too much above that, that would be a concern. One thing that I think may prevent it getting too much above that is the fact that we've got so much household debt in Australia. Uh, and if inflation went up too much, I don't think you'd be able to sustain interest rates at too high levels for too long because that would really adversely affect the economy. Um, so that would put a bit of a break on how much inflation can go up at this high, these high debt levels than we've had in the past. So it's certainly something for investors to keep an eye on. Um, and I think we, we should expect higher inflation than we got used to pre-pandemic, but I don't think it's going to be 1970s-style double-digit inflation. At least, well, fingers crossed, it won't be. Well, Shane, thank you very much for your time again and uh, wishing you all the best for Christmas. My pleasure, Leon. Thanks for having me. And... All the best to you and everyone listening for Christmas and uh, the New Year period. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, Time magazine has announced its pick for 2021 Person of the Year, Elon Musk, the richest person in the world and the chief executive of both Tesla and SpaceX. Musk, who's worth some $266 billion, or $373 billion Aussie, has had a breakout year that's seen him add more than $100 billion, that's $140 billion Aussie, to that fortune and steal the title of the world's wealthiest person from rival Jeff Bezos. And the coalition will spend $5.2 million of taxpayers' funds to promote the Morrison government's online safety reforms in the lead-up to next year's election. The advertising campaign is timed to come into effect, likely January, ahead of an election in the first half of next year. In addition to the Online Safety Act, the government will campaign for its online privacy bill and a social media anti-trolling bill. Meanwhile, the Australia's Making Positive Energy campaign, promoting the Coalition's technology-based approach to climate, has spent more than $200,000 on Facebook ads. Liberal MPs use the government advertisements on their personal social media profiles. In total, 
Taxpayers are paying at least $59 million for major government advertising campaigns to run in the lead-up to the 2022 election. And productivity grew at a paltry 0.2% last financial year, continuing a decade-long deterioration in the most important input into economic growth and prompting calls for a shake-up. The result comes after the International Monetary Fund last week said Australia should redouble efforts to boost productivity with more investment in research and development and technology. Productivity accounted for more than 80% of the national income growth over the past 30 years, according to the Productivity Commission, but the rate of growth has stagnated in recent decades. Multi-factor productivity, or MFP, the ratio of output to combined input of labour and capital and the primary measure of productivity, rose 0.2% in 2020-21, after rising 0.1% in 2019-20, and nil a year prior. Over the past six years, MFP grew on average just 0.4% per year, compared with 0.7% in the five years to 2014-15, 0.3% in the 10 years to 2019, and 1.8% in the five years to 2000. And supermarket giant Woolworths says profit growth could suffer as much as an 8% slide in earnings, and it's slowing. As $150 million in extra costs from operating its business in the COVID-19 pandemic hits the bottom line, at the same time as the at-home consumption shift eases, with shoppers returning to more normal habits and backing off from pantry hoarding. Chief Executive Brad Banducci said profits in the Australian Foods Division are expected to be weaker for the first half of 2021-22 compared with a year earlier. They are also being restrained by between $60 million to $70 million in indirect costs from supply chain disruptions and higher fuel costs. For the first half of 2021-22, Earnings before interest and tax from the Australian Food Division are expected to be between $1.19 billion and $1.22 billion, compared to $1.312 billion for the same period a year ago. And NBN Co. has become the first federal government business to sign on to a global group targeting net zero emissions, joining 18 Australian-based companies and a total of 110 operating here that have made the commitment to do their bit to avert dangerous climate change. The federal government-owned national broadband company has joined RE100, a global group of businesses committed to net zero emissions with ambitious milestones along the way. MBN Co. will set its course towards net zero emissions by aiming to purchase 100% renewable energy by 2025 and all-electric or hybrid petrol-electric vehicles by 2030. Its first renewable energy power purchase agreement will deliver 80 gigawatt hours a year or about 90% of power demand in the 2022-23 financial year. The company also plans to reduce its annual energy requirements by 25 gigawatts through the use of efficient LED lighting, solar panels on MBN installations, and actions such as switching off inactive equipment until it is needed to save on standby energy. And federal and state governments have launched a review into who can call themselves a cosmetic surgeon and up in penalties for deceptive advertising and social media abuse. The States and Commonwealth released a 108-page proposal regarding the use of the title surgeon and cosmetic surgeon. It will be open for public consultation until April 1st, 2022, with the public invited to anonymously provide feedback about their experiences. Under the current law, anyone with a basic medical degree can call themselves a cosmetic surgeon, even though they aren't registered or trained as specialist surgeons. The planned overhaul would see breaches of the law for advertising offences increase to $60,000 for an individual and $120,000 for a body corporate. Health ministers are also proposing to ban misleading testimonials, offering a gift or inducement without stating the terms and conditions, 
for encouraging the unnecessary use of health services. It follows revelations of disturbing practices at a network of clinics run by celebrity cosmetic surgeon Daniel Lanza, including allegations of hygiene and safety breaches and botched surgeries that left patients in extreme pain. And Victoria will become the home of mRNA vaccine technology in Australia under a landmark deal agreed between US pharma giant Moderna and the state and federal governments. The onshore facility will have capacity to produce 100 million messenger RNA vaccine doses per year from 2024 and is expected to boost priority access to other drugs, medical research and development, clinical trial and global supply chain access. Once operational, Moderna will help meet Australia's ongoing needs for COVID-19 vaccines and for other respiratory mRNA vaccines as they develop and improve by Australia's Therapeutic Goods Administration. Messenger RNA vaccines work by prompting cells to make proteins that induce an immune response, causing the body to produce antibodies. The in-principle agreement to create the country's first mRNA manufacturing facility will also allow priority access to non-pandemic vaccines, including potential influenza shots. Under the Moderna deal, the facility will produce 25 million doses a year from 2024, with the capacity to ramp up production to 100 million doses for future pandemics. The Victorian government expects the deal will create up to 500 jobs during the construction and about 500 ongoing roles. And thousands of Australians are cutting ties with an energy retailer that sold itself on its clean and green credentials after it announced it was being bought by Shell. The Anglo-Dutch multinational oil and gas company announced in November that it was buying PowerShop for an undisclosed price. Data from PowerShop's competitors indicates it has likely lost at least 6,000 customers following the announcement. PowerShop operates across Australia, New Zealand and the UK and is currently owned by New Zealand's Meridian Group. In a complex arrangement, Meridian is also partially owned by the New Zealand government. The looming sale, which is subject to regulatory approvals, will see Meridian Group's Australian arm entirely sold off. As well as PowerShop, Meridian's Australian wind farm and hydro projects are being brought by Infrastructure Capital Group as part of a consortium deal with Shell. PowerShop was founded in 2007 and has since built up 185,000 customers in Australia. Its credentials in the renewable energy space include being Climate Active Certified. That is a standard certified by the Australian Government that shows a company is guaranteed as being carbon neutral. That's usually achieved by a company buying carbon credits to offset emissions. And the federal government has launched a crackdown on home care rorts amid revelations that providers spend about $1 billion a year on administration costs in what a former health department secretary has dubbed a broken system. Researchers from the Grattan Institute extracted a 10% sample of home care provider data from the federal government's My Age Care website and found price gouging and high management fees were rife in the federally funded sector, which received $4.2 billion in 2020-21. The Institute's paper found administrative and management costs were about a quarter of the total allocated for a home care package, regardless of the level of service delivered. The Health Department has launched a home care program assurance review, starting with an audit of 100 providers with a focus on administration charges. The sector is experiencing explosive growth after the government allocated $6.5 billion for 80,000 additional home care packages to be delivered over two years to 2022-23 in the May federal budget. And Buy Now, Pay Later has moved into SME loans. Given its rapid adoption in consumer finance, it was only a matter of time before Buy Now, Pay Later concepts extended into lending to business. Fintech SME lending models that shift the cost of short-term credit to supplies of goods to help drive more trade sales and which replace interest payments with fixed fees are emerging. It's a dynamic 
It puts major banks on notice that small business loans could be the next frontier for disruption. Given large lenders missed the arrival of BNPL in the consumer space and having been relatively slow to innovate business lending products, this emerging fintech subsector is set to come into sharper focus next year, according to investors. Buy Now Pay Later for Business has been marketed as a cash flow management tool, and like its consumer cousin, it operates at the intersection of payments and small-scale credit at the point of sale. The focus is funding the business supply chain. The product offers credit on demand for particular purchases, contrasting with open-ended loans or lines of credit. One of the new players in the emerging category is Cloudfloat. It has just raised a $30 million debt facility from the Aura Group and kicked off a fresh $3 million equity raising. Another player is MarketLend, which has a product known as Unlock that pays suppliers upfront and lets buyers pay it back on extended payment terms. Zip, the second biggest consumer BNPL player after Afterpay, is also moving in on the space with Zip Business. Meanwhile, another operator, BizPay, is looking to float next year. And Ramsey Healthcare is expanding its operations in Britain with its $1.4 billion acquisition of mental health operator Elysium Healthcare, which will also strengthen the Australian Hospital Operators' partnership with the National Health Service. It will give the $16 billion diversified private hospitals and healthcare provider a greater slice of the British mental health sector, estimated to be worth as much as $27.75 billion, and at a time when the pandemic and other issues are pushing up the demand for mental health services. And Australia's crypto workforce could explode by 17 times its current numbers, according to a report launched by Senator Andrew Bragg, who is responsible for helping deliver the federal government's landmark crypto and digital payments reforms. Cryptocurrencies and related digital assets could generate as much as $68.4 billion for the economy and employ 205,700 Australians by 2030, according to the report by advisory accounting firm EY. Last week it was reported that the Reserve Bank of Australian Treasury will consider the feasibility of a central digital currency. And Labor will play matchmaker between private enterprise, government and the $3.4 trillion superannuation system to try to convince funds to put more of the nation's retirement savings into infrastructure assets. The policy will elevate the federal government into playing a coordinating role between the private sector, state governments and super funds in an attempt to encourage the sector to direct more capital into local infrastructure projects. The release of Labor's policy comes as both major parties lay the groundwork for an election campaign, which will take place in the first half of next year. Labor will ask funds to put forward ideas for new funding mechanisms to boost investment in large-scale infrastructure projects. And Gilbert and Tobin partner Gina Cass-Godley will be the first woman to head the Australian Competition Consumer Commission after Rod Sims stands down as chairman next year. Mr Sims will end his 11-year reign about four months early so Ms Cass Gottlieb can take over the top job on March 21st, before the federal election. Ms Cass Gottlieb founded Gilbert and Tobin's competition practice, which is now the strongest in Australia in the 1990s. Ms Cass Gottlieb has represented many big companies against the competition watchdog, including the landmark banking cartel case, in which the regulator has accused the global investment giant Deutsche and City of criminal conduct on an ANZ capital raising. Ms Katz Gottlieb is representing immunity witness JP Morgan in the case, which is slated for a five-month trial next year during the time she will transition to the chairwoman's role. She also worked on high-profile mergers such as Tapcor Tattersalls, which the ACCC unsuccessfully opposed, and IWF's acquisition of ANZ's one part. And law firms are cashing in on the push to net zero as demand for energy transition advice booms 
while they cut emissions themselves as their junior staff demand they walk the talk on ESG issues. Herbert Smith Freehills launched a new ESG team this year, for example, while Norton Rose Fulbright pointed to energy transition work as a high-growth area, and Allens flagged environmental concerns as a core focus for clients. Companies pursuing net zero also often included the carbon footprint of their suppliers, such as lawyers and their targets, which meant law firms also needed to cut their emissions as a matter of business necessity, said Allen and Overy Energy and Resources partner Goran Gallick. The global firm has committed to cutting its absolute carbon emissions by 50% by 2030, meaning it will actually decrease carbon output rather than merely offset it for a net reduction, both directly and in its supply chain. Lander and Rogers has ambitious targets to be carbon neutral by next year and net zero by 2025 through changes such as limiting air travel and using 100% renewable energy. COVID-19 has helped firms make this transition, allowing them to cut back on emissions-heavy activities such as air travel for court and client meetings. And biotech giant CSL has sealed a $16.4 billion buyout of Switzerland Vifor Pharma Group, gaining a foothold in rapidly growing markets for kidney disease and iron deficiency treatments that complements its core immunodeficiency and haemophilia therapies. The Melbourne-based blood products giant said kidney disease was a rapidly growing market estimated to exceed US $25 billion annually by 2026, driven by ageing populations and rising rates of obesity, diabetes and heart disease. And that's it for this week. And this was the final episode of 2021. Talking Business will return on Friday, February the 4th, 2022. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe, healthy and happy Christmas and New Year. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business in 2022. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.